Welcome to today's Information Governance podcast. I am joined by Rosie, Juliet and Shane, who will introduce themselves in a moment. Thank you all for joining me. We are here to talk about information governance in health. Um, we have three topics on the agenda. So the first is the new normal, information governance in a post-COVID world. What are we keeping? What no longer exists? Any particular challenges of, of the new normal, as we call it? And then we're also going to talk about privacy in real life. So some Essentially, examples or impacts of information governance failures impacting on real life and how our processes prevent that. And we're really hoping to explore why good information governance is important. Um, and then finally, how to wield your power. So the pace of change that we've experienced through the pandemic has, I think, sometimes increased um, the profile of information governance for lots of stakeholders. I think it's a great moment for us to think about how do we use that? What are we going to do with that going forward to kind of keep that profile there and to make sure that information governance is improved throughout our organisations? Um, so that's what we're going to talk about. I'm going to ask each of you to um, introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your role, and then we'll dive straight into the new normal, which might be the most um, overused phrase in 2020. Um, who wants to go first with an introduction? Okay. So, yeah, so I'm Rosie Underwood, I'm the Head of Information Governance at um, NHS Blood and Transplant. I'm fairly new into the role, and I've been in the role about just shy of five months. So, NHS Blood and Transplant is, is a national body, so it's the NHS um, Blood Donation Services in England and Transplant um, Services. Um, so, I head up the Information Governance team, so we have our remit of work is essentially IG services to the rest of the business. It's data sharing, it's freedom of information, it's subject access requests records management, anything to do with IG will come through our function. Um, I do also have um, some oversight in kind of the information security space, doing um, a piece of kind of culture piece of work at the moment. Um, and before joining NHS Blood Transplant, I was working at NHS Digital, so I was in the Data Security Centre. So largely, um, the last kind of three to four years, my um, background has been cybersecurity linked with IG, and this is really my first role that's solely um, um, just focusing on our information governance. That's really interesting. Thanks, Rosie. I can imagine, I mean, changing role within the pandemic, but into a field like IG where things are rapidly changing so much. Um, I can imagine you've got quite a lot to um to to wrap your head around, I would I would think. Yeah, it's challenging, good, good challenge, uh, very busy, but yes, um uh, quite a difficult kind of transition obviously working at home as well. Of course, of course, hard to meet your team in the um, in in the virtual environment. Um, Shane, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, uh, I'm Shane Dark, um, the Information Security Assurance Lead for Birmingham Community Healthcare Trust at the moment. Uh, from a broader IG point of view, um, I was a Senior Information Assurance Specialist at uh, NHSD, um, and then prior to that, um, Strategic Head of IG for um, NHS West Midlands. Um, so for the uh, Community Healthcare Trust, I think it's the second largest one in the country, I think, outside London. Um, and we're working essentially with five divisions that were formerly the clinical arms or clinical provision arms of um, five primary care trusts in Birmingham. Um, so it's working in quite, quite a complex environment, um, I think in particular in context of uh, COVID um, and a lot of the uh, digital transformation that's been going on. Uh, and I think it's been, it's been accelerated through that. So um, I'm now looking more at the technical security aspects again, cyber side of it, like Rosie, 
um, rather than just the uh, just like the broader IG picture. Of course, it all, it all links in together. Um, it's just it's quite interesting to take a uh, to take a closer look at the technical technical aspects as well. So. There's quite a lot of parallels there then in terms of the, the shift from between you and Rosie of going from, from cyber into IG and you're sort of in IG and looking mm -hmm. more towards that technical side of things. It's it's interesting how closely linked they are. Um, Juliette. Hi, thank you. I'm just coming off mute there because I'm just touching on Rosie's um, thought there about uh, the challenges of working from home. Sorry, I just had to turn around and deliver the cat food down to my cat. She's just entered the room. We're all familiar with those off. challenges. <laughs> so that just just to touch on that, Rosie, I, I hear you loud and clear. <laughs> so sorry if I turned away for a second. So introductions. Yeah, so I'm Juliet Norris. I'm Head of Information Governance, Risk and Assurance. Um, I work for NHS Shared Business Services. Uh, we're one of the largest shared business services in the country. Um, we are part of a software stereo group, so we, uh, our entity focuses entirely on delivering support and savings back into the NHS. But we do have a sister company that also does the same um, for quite a lot of sections of the government and public sector. So I do actually get borrowed across the patch, as we, as we say from time to time. Um, and then my background, I've been here just over four years. I was lured away from perhaps the Jedi side of the, the NHS. I, were, I did um, six years in a mental health community trust and then um, four years in, a, in a, an acute trust. So definitely been on the client side of where I am now. So, and often I approach my work with a, the perspective of if I were the client, would this be good enough? So, so that's the, the tackle I take there. And we have a small team as, as is often the way with IG. Um, and they need us when they need us and they'd like us to be more then but uh, often um, it, we are small teams and that's often the same at my client sides as well and um, my team also has responsibility for managing um, the risk um, and assurance uh, framework for the business we also deal with serious incidents and I also have the counter fraud team uh, coming into me as well so so it is quite a, a broad portfolio um, and then in terms of our client base, it's nearly nearly all providers, acute, acute um, providers, definitely all the commissioners and, and uh, NHS England and NHS Digital are certainly all in our client base. So um, they definitely keep us busy. Wow, that is a, that is a lot. Um, Juliet, thank you. Um, so thank you all for introducing yourself. So I'm Jen Howard. I'm the Director of Risk and Compliance for Evolution Recruitment. We deliver, our company delivers um, tech talent through the NHS um, and statement of work pieces and consultancy and things like that. Um, I specifically work with clients on their compliance challenges and their risk challenges and you know information governance is one of those um, to help that to, to improve. And it is something that I am um, naturally super interested in so I took the opportunity to to host these podcasts and build a networking group um, so I can better understand what those challenges are and, and then the solutions that I deliver are you know better tailored to fit um, so yeah thank you all for introducing yourself that's great so we're going to kick off by talking about the new normal so information governance in a post-covid world and I think um, what I've seen is, you know, you've got this rapid transformation from the previous sort of status quo that was, you know, everyone knew how that, what that picture looked like. So we've been in this period of 
crisis and rapid change and you know having to make whole scale changes that we would have thought were impossible I would have anyway like oh well everyone's just going to work from home now and you know all these things that just seemed like massive challenges and we're almost coming to a point now where I think we're sort of looking at the landscape and thinking okay well what does normal look like for us going forward what you know what are the lessons we can take from that rapid change what are the things that we want to stop doing that we've been having to do because we're in crisis mode um so i'm just interested in your experience of that of that do you guys think that you are at that point where you're planning for this new normal and what do you think will be different from from the previous status quo and i'm happy to hear from any of you that would like to speak to that yeah, I mean, what I was going to just when you're going through that to start with. So this obviously this is very topical. It's it's in lots of reports. So I was reading um, an ICO report the other day. It was the Global Privacy Enforcement Network report, and that's essentially a report that's going to look at whether or not we can kind of badge ditters reset our privacy. Do we need to implement the changes that we've done during COVID for long term? Obviously, this is a really, really topical, topical conversation, um, and that's a really, really good report to kind of um, have a look through. Thank you. In terms of um, NHS fund transplants, as I say, I'm, I'm fairly new into the role, so I wasn't really in, in my role during when the pandemic started. Um, but what we did as an organisation, so um, when the COVID regulation came in, so that was the Control of Patient Information Regulation came in, um, we NHS Digital shared with us um, confidential personal information um, to enable us to go out to prospective um, convalescent plasma donors. Um, so that was the data sharing underneath that regulation to enable us to contact prospective donors. Um, you may have seen in the press now that that's not actually being deemed a, a viable kind of COVID uh, treatment. So for us, that's something that was absolutely um, key during the pandemic that, that is going to stop, that data sharing is going to stop. Um, another thing that we did during um, COVID, which again, we are kind of moving back to our kind of, let's say, normal ways, um, we did um, a DPA-like process. <clears throat> so um, any data sharing um, that was needed under the COVID regulation, we did that kind of streamlined DPIA. So that we're continuing to get the right governance around our processes, but enabling us as a business to have that rapid response to COVID. Um, and so what I'm doing at the moment is looking at, you know, which ones of those copy lights need to be converted into full DPIAs. Um, so that's kind of, I suppose, that's kind of what we have done. I think we are kind of moving towards back to our um, kind of ways of working after COVID in terms of an IG perspective. That's that's really interesting, Rosie. Thank you. Um, I'm interested in you said that's going to stop now. So is that do you see that as a positive? Is that improved information governance or is that something that, you know, you could get more value from continuing that? What, what, what's your view? Or do you have one? In terms of the data sharing with Entries Digital? Yeah, I mean, that yeah. was a specific purpose. It was about helping us to get to prospective adolescent plasma donors. Unfortunately, because there's not deemed a viable treatment, you know, it doesn't need to continue and that's kind of, you know, the right answer. Obviously, okay. had had covalescent plasma been um, successful as a, as a treatment, then yes, we would have to have kind of continued that data sharing, but under another legal basis once the regulation comes to an end, um, end of September. Okay. 
Okay, I see. Okay, um, thank you. Um, does anybody want to comment on um, on Rosie's response there or on the question directly? Uh, yeah, I, I'm happy to, if that's okay with Sh is Shane. <laughs> I was respecting the room. Um, just, yeah, just to say, I hear you, Rosie, and I hear a lot of parallels there with likely what you've had to had to manage. And I would imagine from your own personal experience, I, just, I don't know if you've been to any premises yet, but it, probably living like most of your most of your other employees. I know in our business, we've had a, a rapid growth um, for a few reasons that I'll explain. Um, and that's led to a bunch of new colleagues that we've never met in person. And, and I, I think that's probably your experience as well. And some of our colleagues that were, as we're beginning to work towards whatever the new normal might be. Um, I've had a few colleagues recently saying things like, I hope I get to meet you soon, you know, as in, you know, properly, which is quite nice. So I think it's really recognizing the human part. And I think the reason for mentioning that is one of the biggest challenges we had during COVID was actually making sure our workforce were okay, making sure that they were safe, that they could operate as best as they could, which in turn would, would uh, provide the service to the clients. Um, and one of the core services that we provide is um, finance and accounting and payroll for the NHS. So you could imagine with the increase and influx of extra staff coming into the NHS, um, at certain points, I know that our business was um, onboarding around 400,000 extra staff um, for the whole of the NHS um, th through one week and making sure that those people got paid. Well, you could imagine the phenomenal burden in a way, and, and I mean it in burden in a very positive manner, because we knew what a positive thing that was to, and how valuable it would be to make sure that those people got quite rightly the remuneration they had earned. And that, that was sort of a rolling theme of the pandemic. So we had to make sure we could shore up and deliver, um, you know, those outcomes, because absolutely the worst thing that we would all think of, so we're quite a values-led company, um, is to, to imagine somebody actually having worked a horrible long shift and then realizing they didn't get their pay you know at the end and, and so we talk a lot we're very patient-centered and, and i'm a caldicott guardian as well so so i i'm the ethical lead for patient data but in all essence i like to i just take that across an umbrella i always think about if it's good enough for the staff as well as if it's good enough for the patient because you know we're all registered with a gp somewhere we're all living the same experience and i, I think that's I have a little aid memoir, which is if it's good enough for my granny, then it's probably OK, which is, you know, a good rule, rule of thumb. And I try, I try to make that connection. But certainly through the challenge, we had um, quite a large team offshore in India. And with the pandemic and with the pandemic hitting in India, we had to um, manage that carefully to make sure that everything was compliant. We had very secure premises in India. Uh, and actually, as a result, some changes have been made and we've actually onshored some of that work. So then we had to bring on a large um, workforce to manage that but on the whole it's been done very well and and the business will not mind you will not mind me saying that we've won some plaudits for that and some really great um, client feedback so that was all took the horn there but in all essence you can imagine as an IG person I was risk assessing that constantly is it safe do our colleagues have enough equipment do they, can they apply good practice in a, in a new work zone in their home versus in an office, which would be more of a secure environment? So really having a think about that, that employee experience and was it as good as we could make it happen for them? Can we manage any risks? 
And, and all, although we expected that ha we didn't have any serious breaches, but if we had had one, we did expect that our clients would have actually been surprisingly more tolerant given all the kerfuffle. But I'm very glad to say we never had to you know, <laughs> employ that card. But, but I certainly would have been very open to a frank conversation about the challenges that we were all having and where you put your priorities. But, but that's been one of the big things. And we are definitely planning for a, a hybrid working model going forward, a little bit more flexibility for staff to work from home. And also knowing that some staff do wish to come back into offices when things feel safe and stable. So we're risk assessing that all the time. And that's always looking at the data, always looking at the, the, the data aspect for the, the services, the clients, the patients, because we do do some patient services as well, but also making sure that the staff have everything they need to execute their, their roles as, as best as they can. And then managing that, we've onboarded new clients. So it's, it's been a phenomenal year if i'm honest and i've learned a lot <laughs> i can tell you through that year it's been been rather fascinating um but yeah so i, I can give some other examples um as we go forward but but i think just agreeing with everyone i'm gonna happy happily pass the baton to shane because I, I i can't imagine we've all had a year like it <laughs> which i know is an understatement but um but yeah it's, Thanks, it's been an Julia. interesting year <laughs> yeah thank you i think um it's really interesting the the offshoring and then onshoring and the changes that people um, the changes that people have been kind of forced to make and then it you know now we're sort of looking at those things aren't we and thinking okay what what works I don't think if we'd have done the homework in um, thing outside of a pandemic I don't think we'd have given as much consideration to how does it affect staff and how does that work and even IG considerations I think. Um, because everybody across the country was doing it at the same time and often across the world, it kind of led to much more conversations about what does that mean? How does that work? What are the impacts of it? Whereas I think if organisation by organisation we'd have done it, it probably wouldn't have had the same um, the same impetus and the same scrutiny. Um, Shane, what, what are you taking forward in your, are you in a new normal now, do you think? Um, I'm not quite sure what to, what normal is to be honest. Over the last two years, I think I uh, I joined the trust um, about three months before um, before COVID hit, uh, which made life interesting while I was still getting my feet under the table. Um, but I think from working in an organisation uh, that's delivering um, large scale community care, uh, I think we've got something like 100 plus sites um, across the five divisions right across uh, right across the Midlands. But when I joined, they're undergoing a, um, a digital transformation, and I think a common meme is actually being said is uh, what, what actually drove digital transformation was it COVID? Um, and in our case, we're we're undergoing it anyway. Um, but I think the need to suddenly supply the infrastructure uh, kit for remote working at the sort of scale that, that we did. Um, I mean, our, 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 our IT people, DTS, um, did it at a phenomenal scale, but. Obviously, with all the other requirements for information sharing, the ongoing transformation work, putting new systems in, um, all of a sudden you haven't really focus on what you're looking at from a security perspective. Um, and in particular, I'm thinking of this with, with an IG hat on working with our uh, DPO. Uh, was the security component of DPIAs, I think, in particular. Um, and I wouldn't say it's taken a pragmatic look at it, um, but it was kind of like looking and saying, is that secure? Bearing in mind the way we're now working in a lot of cases. Um, because there's always been a push, I think, in terms of information sharing over the last 18 months uh, to be a little bit expedient. Um, yeah. So from my point of view, I was more focusing on the, is it secure to share it? 
rather than um, the from, from a data protection point of view is should all of it be shared or should part of it be shared? I left, I left that to other people. Um, and I think um, I, I think there's a lot of what's going on um, during COVID with the uh, sort of like uh, the bad guys from a cyber perspective that, that we really needed to focus on. In particular, I think um, being able to share data securely um, across uh, across services. I think that was a big thing. And I think one of one of the other things is um, obviously working in the back, the back office sort of contingent supporting clinical staff, uh, which is which is what we're there for. Um, is making sure that they actually had the tools available to them to do what they needed to do. Um, our office is pretty much, I think, um, pretty much closed down. There were relatively few people in, I think. And that's probably the same everywhere. Um, and uh, that, that, again, obviously presented its own challenges. And I think some of the other things, it was around uh, specifically systems relating to supporting COVID. So um, we were standing up systems for managing PPI um, for external access. And these things were, you know, these are things were being done at speed. Um, and I think um, going back to the new normal, it's um, are we going to be, we, do we need to continue to be expedient or do we just look at everything uh, right across the piece and go belt and braces again? Um, which is what we used to do before. And I'm not, not for one minute saying we actually slacked on it because that, that's not right. Um, but I think we really did focus on what are the key things we need to make sure uh, are secured to actually do that. So um, as I say, there's a lot of technical stuff in particular um, because we've got um, uh, sort of, if you like, secondary care community hospitals in particular where um, COVID patients were, were recovering. Um, so things like iPads. And that's one of the things we did. We actually set up iPads for patients. Uh, in some cases, you knew it might be the only way that they'd be able to speak to um, speak to their speak to their families because there were no visiting. Um, so there's all sorts of interesting things around how do you actually manage patient access to networks, trust kit. Um, there's, I'm quite happy to pick some more up as we go along, but uh, lots and lots of examples of that. That's um, it's a really good point. I, I made a note of um, of two things, I suppose of. Um, that, that link together so that idea that because of the because of the scale of the change that was like forced upon us and the the requirement like the urgency and the seriousness of it you become much more um clear about what's necessary so you said there about being expedient not necessarily being slack it's not about that but you're suddenly hyper focused on is this essential like you're weighing those harms in a much more clear way aren't you rather than often it can feel like a theoretical impact um and it's always better to do belt and braces because you know that's just that that's our nature and that's that's what you guys want to do as organizations um but when you're in that sort of focused time you it enables that kind of really clear is me preventing this or stopping this or you know doing something differently does that really provide a better impact for you know ultimately patients um it's really interesting and and the other thing was the new challenges i wonder whether um you know about like ipads for example i wonder whether in a pre-covid world would if that had been kind of brought up as a oh we'd like to do this do you think that could have been a that's not possible or it's not worth doing or you know, has it kind of created this innovation, I suppose, that now we, we need to take forward? Does anyone want to speak on that? Yeah, so I'd say 50-50 on that, Jenny, because, um, you know, five years ago, before all this 
COVID malarkey was was available. Um, you know, I worked in a, an acute hospital where we had a massive community nursing side, uh, Shane, and actually we were always pushing for technology provision out to either the staff and out to patients directly. And we had one of the first telemedicine suites in, in the country that was delivering um, basically doctor-led appointments straight into care homes, cutting down ambulance travel, cutting down dis discomfort for patients who were having to travel to what in essence were in some cases basic appointments um, and then also expanding that into prison services to again to cut down um, unnecessary travel and reduce costs. So I think the technology drive has always been there and certainly in the last 10 years uh, and I'm a big fan of using encrypted kit on the go I think it's you know much better than losing the paper files at the bus stop like the government but you know don't don't put that on the website <laughs> but you know <laughs> um, but yeah so uh, encrypted good tech is the way forward I would definitely say however that the, the and I pick up on Shane's word which is pace and I've written that in my notes for today I think it's the pace that people want to move sometimes our clients wish to implement a change much quickly much much more quickly than they used to do and they're happy to take more risks with it and we might be a processor to their controller, but we still have to make sure that the work's right. So even though if I was being asked to sort of advise on something at pace or, or expediency, lots of polite words for do this now fast um, <laughs> and give us an answer now. Um, but basically, I was all, always in my mind thinking data minimization. What are all the safety principles? Should we do it versus how do we do it? You know, always trying to think those, but just probably getting through them a bit more rapidly than than we've previously been required. And I think the move to digitization, so really moving away from because of social distancing measures and, and just as Shane described there, this is where tech it's, it has been there. I don't think we're seeing brand new tech. I think we're seeing tech being used a bit differently, a bit more rapidly and with a bit more push to turn it around. Uh, quickly like for example we, we've had a payroll app in place but that's just exploded people don't want to be going in the office to get a payslip they just want to get their their payslip digitally Th these are minor examples there's much bigger examples in healthcare we have a procurement arm that, that pushed forward and, and set up the Nightingale hospitals um, you know over a matter of, of how many weeks which probably in another in another time space would have been a far longer exercise so so I think it's just that push to use what was emerging anyway. Yeah, that's true. I think to add to that as well, oh, sorry, Shane, you go. No, sorry, Karen, Rosie. No, please, after you. Um, I suppose for me, slightly away from the digitization aspect, but going back to the, the great word of pace, <laughs> I think it's users of our business, so using NHS Fund Transplant, have cottoned onto that pace and the need to share this data at a much quicker rate. I think for me, as the internal IG specialist though is now making me think if we're going to continue at this pace what do I need to do in terms of technology what do I need to do in terms of the people we've got in our team the people our users of our system and what do I need to start to do to refine some of our processes to make sure we can, can, can continue to keep up with this demanding pace yeah it's a really good point absolutely I mean I think from um, sort of working working with colleagues essentially on the front line um, looking at things like the STP uh, groupings uh, and sharing information between organisations, of course, moving into ICSs, that, that was that was already a pace anyway. Um, and I think one of the things it probably did help was it perhaps helped accelerate some of the things that needed doing anyway. 
um, as you're saying, Julia, a lot of it was a lot of it was already going on. Um, but to some degree, yeah, the old meme about uh, what what uh, what moved your digital transformation program forward? It was COVID. I mean, as I say, in our case, we were doing it anyway. But you'd like to think it helped speed it up and get organisations talking to each other a bit more um, in terms of sharing data for sort of uh, multidisciplinary between multidisciplinary teams across primary, secondary care, um, and community as well, obviously. Um, and I think um, I, th- I think that probably really did uh, get get some momentum going, uh, and hopefully that won't slack off. Um, I, I think I think that's a really positive thing. Yeah, and t- just touching on that because I think you know um, when I was client side, we used to have an adage that if you wanted to get someone into a role, you know, it was roughly a six month process by the time you you mm-hmm. advertised, recruited, did notice period, and so on. And and I've seen a real rapid change in that. So I think it goes to because that was frustrating at the time when it was happening. And and I think sensible people used to think this just shouldn't take this long. It seems slow. It seems clunky. And I think what the pandemic has done it is it's brought some of that to the fore. And it's actually people have been creative and they have found ways to expedite what used to be slower. And, and I think hopefully we we as a collective with all of our colleagues find ways to make sure those good changes don't go back, that we actually harness what was good and then, you know, manage carefully. I think like Rosie said, like manage carefully. If pace is to continue, how, how do we bring it to a good sense of balance that actually everybody's comfortable with? Yeah, that's really important, isn't it? Because I think um, you touched on it earlier about, you know, if something happened, everyone would be a little bit more lenient. There was a little bit more of an acceptance of, you know, we need to get certain things done. And, you know, there was just, a, I suppose, a sense from everybody of there's this one priority and even, you know, private businesses were all grappling with the same sort of thing. And there was just a bit more of a, a clarity, I suppose, in terms of what was important. Um, and as we move forward, you, you just won't have that. Well, you so those those lighter touch processes or those, you know, even the pace, people are going to continue to expect the pace. Your service users are going to continue to expect the pace. But, but the scrutiny that we receive will go back to pre-pandemic levels I would imagine so you're we're going to have to find ways to balance delivering at that pace without compromising we still all had to do a toolkit last year they didn't take it off mm-hmm. the table so they moved the deadline but they didn't take it off the table now uh, bizarrely my, my team are quite well organized in the toolkit and I'll give them the plaudits for that they, you know they keep us in good shape and actually we chose to go in for the March deadline um, as usual because I felt I couldn't justify extending it I felt we've done our bit we've been audited we've done well on that and I wasn't always confident what the centre would choose to do for the next 12 months and whether they would keep the, the time scales moving on and so, so on and so forth. So I just thought, well, we'll, we'll err on the side of caution and we'll, we'll put it in. But isn't it interesting that actually that that didn't vanish, did it? It still had to be done through the year. They know they gave a bit more grace on it, but, um, but I think you're right. And I think if we're thinking about you know, even doing things for the greater good, there's still an accountability. We're seeing that now in the press. We're seeing that now with reviews back into the government's handling of choices, decisions and so on. So why would we be any different? And I think it's the it's the same ripple effect of once things calm, there will be people reflecting on did we make the right choices at the right time? 
Yeah, that's really valid. It actually takes us on to our next agenda point very nicely. So thanks for that, Juliet. You can come again, um, <laughs> which is privacy in real life. So um, examples or impacts of, of information governance failures impacting on real life and how our processes prevent that. So obviously we've all made decisions in this crisis mode where we feel like we've balanced the risk of harms with you know, the need to get things done. And I suppose I've seen lots of examples in the in the big wide world of times when people do come to harm from from privacy or information governance done badly. Um, and I think it's really important that we talk about ways that it can go wrong and why we do the things that we do. You know, we all talk about DPIAs and trips off the tongue, doesn't it? You know, all of the various processes that we have in place. And sometimes I think it's important to remind people why we do that what the purpose of those having those really robust controlled processes are because when you don't there are you know there are some some pretty bad outcomes so I don't know if anybody's got any experience or seen anything that um that they could speak to on that i've got a few options but one to perhaps that we could all probably relate to is actually a is actually a a private sector case which is the Morrison's data breach and I think that's quite a good one to discuss because actually it's about the rogue behaviour of an employee so I'm sure everybody on this call is familiar with, with that and the court cases that have happened but we, we've used that internally as a really good example because if you look at it the employee involved who created the data breach you know actually had the correct role-based access the data they had access to was suitable um, and when it was going to court and Morrisons were being held liable, we, I think a lot of us were in horror thinking, how, how can we be held liable for the deliberate malicious acts of someone who had appropriate access to do what was a trusted role? It's a bit like saying if a doctor does harm, you'll all be liable for it. It's really the similar equivalent. So that caused a lot of horror until it, until it got struck out at the top top level. But again, something we've done to harness that attention on IGU internally is to discuss the amount of money Morrisons have had to spend to defend that case. Because we talk a lot about fines and sanctions, but we don't really talk about the cost of the legal fees to fight something in court. We don't even talk very much about the internal costs of getting all of our executives together. If you had a serious breach, a serious incident, what's the hourly rate of that call? You know, and it'll be frightening in many of our organisations, you know, running into, I'm sure, tens of thousands of pounds at a certain point if you're managing a serious incident. And actually, some of that's not that terribly easy to, to quantify, but we should be aware of it because it's definitely uh, um, an example of, of where internal activity is often not quite seen for the cost that it actually is. Yeah. Back to reach prevention being a, a wonderful thing where we where we can ever do it and look at the Morrison's case could they have prevented that that's probably a really challenging question to answer I would actually err on the side of that would have been quite challenging to prevent and that could yeah. happen in any organization yeah I think I, I would agree with you I had the same horror looking at the the Morrison's case of hang on how how would I advise a business to protect mm. against this exact scenario I can't but um but the point that you make around um, the difference between fines and sanctions and, and the actual cost of things, I talk about that a lot. I do um, contractual reviews a, a great deal. And a lot of the conversations that I have with people 
are they'll say to me yes but would that stand up in court or would that court I'm like the cost is way before we get to court you know you've got the the cost of dealing with these issues um and yeah it's it's a really valid point because it's often the case in IG as well isn't it it's often the case that it's not about whether you get fined it's you know just the process of leading to these different things can tie up your tie up your organization significantly I don't know what you, what you think your highest risk is, but I, I always think it's human error, because if you come back to any of the big cases, there's usually a human involved and you can have the best policies, the clearest procedures, but it, it, humans are messy. That's one of my favourite phrases. And there's, an, there's a predictable unpredictability about human behaviour. And, and you asked for a couple of real life examples. I'll give you one that's rather sad and I, I won't name where it's from, but this is about where things go awry and it really affects people. We, we had a, a colleague at a trust who was a, a ward clerk who could access um, medical information for patients in a certain group that she helped to administrate from. A colleague of hers had an adult son that was receiving treatment in that service and was receiving treatment across the patch. Some of that being, he was a young adult and he was receiving some adult mental health uh, service treatment. That young man sadly passed away in tragic circumstances. And we discovered through some, um, sorry, I think my dog's going to bark. So <laughs> Queenie come at the door in a second, so bear with. But um, we discovered through some conversation after, the, after this um, uh, sad event that some discussion had been held in the office regarding the events around this gentleman's death and some of it had been privileged information within our record system. So we did an audit trail and we discovered that one of, one of the deceased mother's colleagues had gone into the system um, and had a had a read of what had gone on for that young man, and that was way beyond obviously the scope of, of her role. And it's incredibly distasteful. And I and I mention it on this call because of how, you know, it was strikes an emotive chord, doesn't it? And it actually comes back to that. You know, our policies say don't do it. Our procedures say don't do it. If someone chooses to take an action, um, how do we prevent it? Where where do we go? How far do we go? Anyway, it came out, the audit trail evidence was clear as day. The colleague who had who had committed the infraction um, was interviewed and claimed to have done no wrong. Really felt that that it was totally within the scope of her job to to go in and look at this. And so that and she alleged so she could support her colleague or her, her colleague was off sick dealing, grieving with her, grieving for her son. So we explained to this uh, colleague that none of her actions were appropriate. That they were really inappropriate and in fact, there was never a reason to go into a deceased person's record unless you're involved in, you know, post the care, which arguably she wasn't. But it was actually a really challenging case to take forward to HR and actually to deal with. And it's one of the few cases in my career, and I've dealt with a lot of unusual behaviour from clinicians and, and, and clerks and all sorts of other roles across the NHS, um, young doctors in particular, junior doctors, <laughs> sometimes don't seem to get taught NAIG when they're in medical school, seem to think that access to the systems means access to everything. <laughs> so so we've had some challenging conversations there and done a lot of training. But uh, but actually, when we were taking this one forward, it's, it's one of the few times in my career I've actually ever recommended we seriously think about taking a prosecution forward. And um, be because the lady's attitude was just so poor. And I thought we cannot continue to have threats like this in our business. We cannot continue to have personnel who think this way you know, within our services because the onward risk was too much. And, and it's a sad decision to be, even be part of that recommendation because you, I would never take a livelihood 
you know, um, without a great, a great amount of seriousness. But really, that was the right course of action at that time. And we don't hear too much about that going on, but it, but it does happen. The, um, it, it's interesting what you're describing. Um, I mean, I, I think it goes to prove the point that um, you can have the uh, policy, policy process and procedure in place. But if the education's not there, then it all comes to, comes to naught. And I, again, I mean, just quickly reflecting on the point you were making there, um, Juliet, I've certainly uh, had situations where uh, in the past, uh, I'd say, just to qualify that, um, where there have been uh, potential data breaches of the sort you're describing. And one of the considerations you have to take into, into account is, has that person, for instance, done their um, mandatory information governance training? Uh, because it puts you, it's not just puts you on an awkward foot when you actually have to go to HR to actually discuss this. It really is a case of do, do folk actually know what's expected of them? Yeah. And I, I think in terms of... If I can just add there, Shane, just that you're spot on and these are all the questions I would have been asking. Um, and and it, this, is, this is also a case from a previous employment, just to, just to be clear. But um, actually, one of the reasons we could take it forward to HR and, and the lady left the business was because she had been there 14 years and had done IG training every year. So we actually had a really clear cut history of her attending her training, completing her training, but her behavior was proven to act in contrary to the training. And that was one of the levers we could use to make what ultimately needed to be made as a decision. But you're right, because if we were the ICO looking at that, aren't we all looking at culture, training, you know, what's the culture, what are we fostering in our organizations? So you're absolutely spot on. Um, the thing, yeah, sorry. Yeah. The, the other thing I was thinking of is I know. Uh, sorry, I think Jenny. I don't know whether you're looking for specific. Um, I'd say horror stories. I don't like. I don't like to use that. But. I'm happy to let the conversation go where it goes. You, you share what you're comfortable with, Shane. Well, certainly in my experience, um, having having had oversight of as well as working for a lot of, in a lot of sort of operational environments from an IG and information security perspective. Um, I tend to look at information governance, information governance as being data protection and information security. They just knit so closely, they sort of map so much across to each other. I think people sometimes don't uh, don't, don't recognise that. But one of the things I've found certainly working uh, throughout NHS, as I guess everybody else has, is when there's a failure, when there's a breach, if it's not education, um, sometimes it comes down to business process management. Um, it's something the NHS doesn't suggest. I'm, I'm not tarring, you know, organisation with the same brush, but I've certainly come across um areas within the nhs where business process management um, is not as good as it should be um, and certainly when there's a when there's a failure in sort of that uh, in, in the sort of process uh, for managing data and having oversight of it um, i think sometimes we find it a bit difficult to go back and say we need to add an additional level of bureaucracy which is what it's going to be seen like mm -hmm. to stop this from happening again when, when actually it really is um, but and then it shouldn't really be bureaucracy, it should be innate, it should be, you know, it should be sort of built into the system. But additional burden, additional things to do, I think, um, sometimes not, it's probably safe to say, not always welcomed. Well, if I can raise something, and I'm going to pass to Rosie here, actually, if I may, and throw it around. But do you do you ever notice that actually your data subjects, whoever they may be, client employees, your own patients, if they don't get good service through the usual routes, so be it through reception, be it through customer service, be it through PALS, any of those routes, do you find that if they have a dis dissatisfactory experience, that actually then they start to engage subject to access and FOI, because we definitely see a pattern there. Uh, and, and certainly within our business, I can see that we're a, we're a basic customer service 
area would be, be it in a care service, even in a financial transaction, where they should be dealing with the actual experts in the area. If that falls down or if that fails, and you touched on this, Jenny, with some of your questions, are people aware of their rights? Well, I believe they really are, and there's an increase in that. So we see an increase in SARS, increase in FOIs, and it's actually because someone didn't get back to someone earlier in the chain in what should have been a routine transaction. And suddenly a routine transaction becomes a legal request. Absolutely, yeah. And something I was thinking about or something that's quite prevalent at the moment is people are a lot more savvy around the privacy. Cookies is a big thing. People are much more savvy around the cookies. Then it just is still the general the general practice planning and research, GP sharing the data, that's throwing lots of questions up. And that, you know, generates lots of questions around anything, freedom of information, subject access requests. Um, I suppose just kind of touching on everybody's points really and going back to what Jenny used at the start of why are we doing this education and awareness I, is, is everybody's spot on is the key to this um, and that is I think will help prevent further IG failures I think it probably goes a bit further than just mandatory training though you know IG, IG functions with it, as I said FOI, SARS and incident records management is not just the IG team's job it's everybody's job. And actually, for me to process an FOI, for example, I can't do the bulk of it. I need the SME in blood or in organ donation to give me that information. So we need to make sure that the users of our business understand the importance of IG and understand why we're doing things and why we have to do things. Because often it's a case of people think, well, I've just got to do a DPIA because I've just got to do it. They don't actually quite understand around you know, why you need to do that. Um, and that's something I think for me personally in my new role, I want to start to drive through the business um, and getting people to really understand why we are here. That's a, a really good point, Rosie. It links to our um, to the other point on the agenda about how you wield your power. How do you influence that? How do we leverage IG's profile to to improve um, to improve the outcome for the stakeholders in our business. So you said that's something you want to do. You want to drive forward that culturally. Have you thought about how you'll do that? Um, yeah, so we're looking at kind of a strategic agenda, if you like. And one of that, kind of the visions of that is being a customer-centric and a neighbour of business objectives. So really easy things, you know, we're revamping our SharePoint site. So we get our name out, people know who we are, get some FAQs on there, um, thinking about having some drop-in sessions each month so people can come rather than just going through kind of our, our mailbox, for example, um, refining some of our templates, refining some of the processes, looking and asking the business about you know, what, what actually works, what doesn't work, you know, because we can have all these documents in IG and take them out to, to our users, but if it's not working, then we're always going to have this bit of a, a battle, if you like. Um, the education awareness is absolutely something that's prominent and think something I would like to kind of get moving. I think we will add that kind of up to our SharePoint site. So we're very early days in our strategic agenda, but those are things we're starting to think about. I think you're spot on, Rosie. And just something I want to touch on, I think probably we all have to experience is, I think to do this job well, 
you need a surprising amount of tenacity <laughs> and, and and I do own with certain we pitch things don't we to certain audiences but you know I've been known to say this isn't sexy we know it we acknowledge that this is not you know I'm not bringing in fees I'm not bringing in profit but actually doing the right thing we should we shouldn't be afraid of really making that moral connection and I use that quite a lot even up to our board to our senior execs and and we really believe in tra uh, training Rosie as well we do we do more than the e-learning absolutely and I go to the board first and I say it's you guys first because I need you to set the example to come down and I'm quite very strong about that we have a good we have a receptive board um wouldn't say that was the same the first year I joined but um but certainly now the message is clear as your leaders and I need you to get behind this and support this and underpin the message down but I, I think you're spot on and if, if I can leave you with a tiny little note we do it around Christmas time and you might find this humorous is we, we do um, regular comms across our business regular messages about all sorts of things around ID little snippets and the staff newsletters bulletins emails we've got lots of different comms um, routes which is great and we utilize as many of them as we can but something we always do is we try and do something personal for the staff and around Christmas we always do a lovely piece about reminding our staff to take to to um, be aware of their own personal data when they're shopping online when they're doing things for Christmas you know during periods of increased spend and what we try and do is we try and say that we care about you as well and we care about what you're doing in your data and we want you to apply the same care into your work so we try to make where appropriate little emotional connections because we think it lives and breathes better and we get some really nice feedback from our staff that they they love knowing that we're thinking about what's happening to them and then they apply that care into the service that they're producing so that just a little touch we're doing we're very proud of it yeah I'll take that as one I mean we are just starting to do and this is more information security but as we've all said, information security, information governance, there are parallels. We are starting with the early days of our information security um, cultural awareness piece. So that will be lightning talks, it will be blogs about how to um, kind of protect yourself at work, but also at home. So that's kind of linked in there as well. We are um, kind of just starting that at the moment. And we're the same. We do we do tie in with our cyber set colleagues, our IT set colleagues, because it's all strands, isn't it? And, and I'm a bit with you, Shane. It's a bit hand in glove. So you've got to pinch mm -hmm. little bits from all of it and put it all together to give a package to to whoever you're you're delivering to. But but as I say, it's just nice. I'm proud we do it anyway. And I'm, it's the feedback we get from our staff, and when they actually say to us, "Thank you," because we feel you care about us, and we've applied that ourselves into our, you know our services, and that's that's nice to hear. Yeah, that's a really good shout, that connection of um, how would you want to be treated? How would you want your data to, to be treated allows people to sort of get that natural thinking. Shane, what are you doing to um, wield your information governance power in your organisation? Um, I don't know about wield it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just always, always mindful that um, if you've got good information governance in place, data protection, information security, um, is it does lend uh, it, it boosts confidence, I think, um, for, for service users, uh, but but also internally as well. I mean, I very much pick up on Juliet's point is the approach I've taken for, for, for all these years working working data protection, information security spaces is um, I'm always thinking, what do I want from that? that? That's what I want for the service users. Now, it can make you perhaps a little bit too tenacious sometimes. Um, it's like a dog with a bone, uh, you know, you, you're sort of trying to do the full nine yards every time, uh, where it's not necessarily appropriate. But, um, yeah, I think um, 
I think certainly, I think with COVID, it's it's really uh, it's really lifted uh, awareness around the need to securely um, share information, and I think keeping that first and foremost in people's minds, and certainly from a cultural point of view, as I think both you and Rosie have, uh, you and Rosie have said, um, is really really important. Um, get it, you know, get it burned into people's uh, psyche, and it sounds it sounds like uh, Jill, the sort of thing you're doing in terms of engagement sounds um, really really good. I've not actually heard of, heard of that before. We do engage well, in IG, but not like that. Well, sometimes, you know, people will say to me, oh, why is this a piece of personal information? You know, it feels a bit dull and mundane to them. And I think, you know, what's the first thing when you introduce yourself to someone? What do you say? Well, you say your name. Well, your name is your legal. It's your legal possession. As I always talk about the theory of identity. Yes, we've got a head and arms and legs and a body, but actually we're we're nameless without a name <laughs> and then what comes with our name our address our personal information our families all the things we've chosen in our life to make up the identity of us and then we go to hospital and we want someone to look after that well don't we because the doctor doesn't call you patient a they call you your name and all the way through that experience and that's what i always say to people is if you think information governance is dull i want you to live and breathe try and think of a day that you can go ahead where your identity doesn't exist it's not possible and I That's say, can really, you, yeah. Can you get a job without an identity? No. Can you get a house without one? No. So I say it's much more important than people think. And I try and link it back to that. Yeah, it's um, it's a really good way to, I suppose, make real something that can feel quite conceptual to people. I always like the um, the advert. I think I think it was for Apple. I'm not sure, but um, somebody's going into a cafe and they're buying something and they're kind of getting followed by everybody that they're with and it's this sort of um it's an advert for a privacy app of some sort but it kind of puts in real life what being on the internet can look like you know oh and there's a cookie here and there's a cookie here and i'm tracking this and i'm going to try and sell you something later and you think do you know what if that was a real life experience we absolutely would not stand for it so it is trying to just make those things um real for people thank you all i'm going to finish with a with a rapid question um for each of you so i've got two questions and i want one line from each of you if i can i'm putting you on the spot but don't worry they're easy ones um so the first thing is what would be your advice for somebody brand new coming into information governance what's the the one thing you you wish you'd known or that you think that people should um should be aware of i'll i'll let you shout out because some of you may not have thought of something um awful basis for processing i like that yeah i like that it's the start of everything isn't it um for me i would say be aware that every day is different and there will be a different challenge every day Yes, and sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes it's not. Juliet? Um, I'm just going to add to Rosie's. I think I think be aware of the variety. It will be much more than you think. Mm -hmm. Prepare to be surprised at things <laughs> you will be asked. <laughs> but for me personally, that's an advocation because I like that variety. It keeps me yeah. interested in the job. So yeah, I like it's, that. It's a mix and, and it's a blessing. <laughs> I like that. Um, okay, final one. What do you think is the most important skill that somebody who works in IG should possess? Diplomacy. That is a really good one. Sorry if I shot anybody's fox. What was it? Diplomacy. Oh, uh, trustworthiness. Trustworthy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, true. Yeah. Julia? Yeah. 
um, just build on those, yeah. Um, I don't think I'm quite as diplomatic as I could be sometimes, uh, Shane. <laughs> but yeah, I think diplomacy is desirable. <laughs> um, I think integrity, Rosie, you're absolutely spot on, mm. credibility. Um, and I think cur curiosity, because yeah. I think when someone asks you a question, usually there's something under that question and you, you need the curiosity to dig a little bit so that you can give them the best advice you can give them. Absolutely. I think that's a, a really good shout. Um, I've so enjoyed our conversation. Um, thank you all so much.